So about maybe a year ago or so, uh, we, were, we were blessed by our pianist, Julie. She gave Graham this, this bucket of, of building blocks, you know, just the little wooden building blocks. And, uh, and they, they've been a lot of fun. He, he has enjoyed those. You know, he goes in and out of phases where he'll play with something like it's the only thing in life that matters. And then it'll go away for like two months and then he'll come back. But he loves these blocks. And, and I love playing with them too because it's nice. It's creative play. He's building things. He somehow can stack stuff like as high as his head. You know, but one of the one of the kind of devastating downsides of those blocks, uh, and don't apologize, we love we love you for it um, because they're great. But when it comes time to clean them up, for whatever reason, like cleaning up those blocks is one of just the banes of our existence. And there's so many of them, you know, and they're little, and you probably have to pick up like a hundred plus little pieces, and we have this little bucket for them. And you know, you're teaching a three-year-old to clean his own toys. Uh, and, and I'll tell you, every single time that it happens, I, I face this temptation to just do it. Because I can clean those blocks up in about 13 seconds flat. Uh, I just scoop them in and I'm done and we can get to bed. And it's always when there's something to do. Like we have to leave to go to school. We have to leave to go to, to this. We have to go to bed. We have to do the next thing. And so I'm trying to get them done fast. And he kind of grabs one block and like, you know, and look, a hundred times. You know, by the fourth one, I'm just ready. I'm like, just get the mm! like blocks, right? As you can tell, your pastor is just an exuberant, patient person. Um, that's just really good at, at that kind of stuff. But here's the thing: I have to fight that temptation to be able to do that for him and acknowledge that he's three. And if I keep doing it for him, he will be the kid someday that doesn't clean up after himself. And whoever he marries, I'll have to apologize to, because when he was three. I didn't teach him to clean up the blocks, <laughs> right? And so what do we do? We painstakingly make him do it, even if it takes a half an hour to clean the blocks. And we'll help him. And I try to help him. He'll grab one, and I'll grab 15, you know. And he'll grab one, and I'll grab 15. But what happens? We, we have this temptation. I, I do it with a little thing like that, right? We have times when we're tempted in the midst of a situation to take matters into our own hands, we know there's a way that something's supposed to go, a timing in which something's supposed to happen, and, and we take it into our own hands where I, instead of letting him do what he's supposed to do so I can teach him, I just do it to get it done. We love to do that with our lives. We want to be in control of our domain and in control of our time. And this is a small example, but we all do it with larger areas of our lives as well, don't we? We do it all the time. And what we really get in trouble is that we like to do it with God. We like to pray and think through what God's will for our life and timing for our life might be. And every once in a while, we get some clarity. The Lord might in our prayer say, wait. But we don't like to wait, right? Why wait when you can take matters into your own hands and just maybe help God out a little bit, right? After all, he's busy. So whatever it is that I'm asking for, let me just help God get started by doing things on my own. A little bit. And so that's what we do. We love to be in charge. We like to take matters into our own hands when the Lord calls something. We're in a series called Flawed. This is our second week where we're looking at the hall of faith in Hebrews 11 and the characters in it. In that list, the Lord lists a whole bunch of people and he essentially has this hall of faith, the people that he attributes great faith to, that he commends in scripture. And there's all these people on this list that we look at and go, yeah, these are heroes of the Bible. But when we dig a little deeper, we start to see 
some deep-seated character flaws. Right? Last week we looked at Moses and we discovered that Moses was, for all he was and for as elevated as he was, he had some deep-seated issues. For him it was an anger issue, among others. But every one of these characters has significant problems. And this morning we're going to look at Abraham and Sarah. If you don't know who Abraham and Sarah are, Abraham and Sarah show up in Genesis. Uh, Genesis 12, the Lord makes a promise to Abraham. Abraham is not a significant figure. Abraham, for all we know, doesn't really know who God is. He's a, he's a guy from the land of Ur among the Chaldeans, and the Lord comes to him and just says, Lord, I'm going to make you this promise. I'm going to take you from here, and you're going to go to the land that I'm telling you to go to, and I will make you a great nation. You will have many descendants, as numerous as the stars. Right? And so Abraham becomes, essentially, by the end of all of this, the patriarch of God's people. Every single Israelite that we see throughout Scripture is a descendant of Abraham. It's how God chooses to start off his people. Right? At first it's chaotic. You know, you have Abraham who then has a child, who then has more children, who then has more children. They grow in numbers. That's how they end up, they end up in Egypt because of the famine with, with Joseph. And then because they multiply while they're in Egypt, the Egyptians start to get worried about them and enslave them. That's how we get to Moses. And eventually the Lord delivers those people. But all those people that the Lord takes out of Egypt and crosses through the sea, they're all descendants of Abraham. It starts with Abraham. Abraham's the first guy. Well, not the first. There's some people that come before him, right? Such as Noah and some others, and we'll get into those guys. But Abraham is known as a patriarch in the Old Testament. And Sarah is his wife. They have this inheritance of a great nation, and God delivered that inheritance, as we'll see by the end of today. Abraham is the father of the Jewish people. His descendants become the Israelites. But Abraham has problems, and Sarah has problems too. Right? We see in Hebrews 11 that they are commended for their great faith and all the results of that great faith and what came from it. But then when we dig deeper and we look at their lives, we see some immensely deeply rooted character flaws. And so this morning, let's spend some time looking at the dichotomy of their rendition of Hebrews 11 and their works in Genesis 16. And we're going to look a little bit later into the, the depths of 21 as well and see some of the ways in which they fail. And we're going to try to figure out, in light of what we see in Genesis, how can God call them great? How can God commend their faith? And so in a moment, I'm going to ask us to stand, not quite yet, and we're going to read both of those texts one after the other. So we'll have a little bit of a chunk, right? But in the chapter that we see in Genesis 16, what happened is the Lord just promised the offspring to Abraham. And it's the very next thing that happens. So think of this. They just received the promise, and then this is the next thing. So with that in mind, I'm going to ask us to stand, and we'll take a look at the book of Hebrews 11. And then we'll dig into Genesis 16. Let's start with Hebrews 11, 8 through 12. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. 
For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man to him as good as dead, we were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. Sounds great. I want God to write that kind of stuff about me. But there's some other things that God writes as well. And we find those in Genesis, verses, chapter 16, verses 1 through 6. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw what she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to them, said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. And then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God indeed. What makes this verse so difficult is that it immediately follows chapter 15. Right. Chapter 15 is where the Lord, uh, we've talked, we talked about this randomly a couple sermons ago in another series, but the Lord is, is engaged with Abraham and he has this dream and this vision and it's the one where the Lord cuts the animals in half and lays them side by side and then walks among them and makes the promise to Abraham of descendants and all these things. And then he essentially says, God says to Abraham, if you don't receive my promise, if I don't come through on my word, may my fate be the same as all of these animals. So what we've just seen, Abraham has just witnessed this glorious, magnificent display of not just God promising something, but God really putting, doubling down. Right? It's not just a, hey, Abraham, I'm going to give you some descendants. Oh, okay. No, no, no. You're going to be a great nation. And here is my display of just how serious I am about the promise that I'm making you. And Abraham would have witnessed this. And right after, we get into what we're talking about in Genesis 16. Right? There's just this faithlessness. Right? He famously seals the covenant. He walks between the dead animals. And Abraham has just experienced this. And these events, they happen in the very next sequence. We would hope to see trust in Abraham, but instead what we see is faithlessness, expediency, and disobedience, right? And one note as we keep going, you're going to see them in, in the text called Abram and Sarai. That's a significant thing. They're the same people, Abram, Abraham, same guy, Sarah, Sarai, same woman, right? And there's, there's some name stuff that comes up later, and we'll get, we'll get into that. So if you see those and you're wondering, why are their names spelled differently in different parts of Scripture, you'll, you'll see why in just a second. But if that confuses you, I just wanted to throw that your way before we keep reading. They are the same people. There's not four characters here. Right? So Sarah immediately, in, in chapter 16, doubts the promises of God. And, and what we need to acknowledge here 
is that her doubt is not really that unreasonable. So there's a couple factors that play into what Sarah thinks and does in this passage culturally that are significant. Number one, Sarah is well into her 70s in this passage. Some of you in the congregation today are in your 70s. If the Lord came to you and said, you're going to have a kid next year, right? Would that doubt be so unreasonable? If you're not yet in your 70s, I'm sorry, but you don't know what it feels like to be in your 70s. I don't know what it feels like to be in your 70s, but I can imagine that having children is probably not the thing on your mind. Right? You might be hoping for grandchildren right now that you don't have to carry. Right? So it's this terrifying thing, and she's like, yeah, right, I'm 70 years old. I'm not going to have a kid. What are you going to, yeah, like, am I going to have, like, like, adopt? No, 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 you're going to have the offspring. She doesn't believe it, and it's kind of, normal that she doesn't believe it, right? That doesn't excuse her from her lack of faith, but it is to understand that this wasn't a a 32-year-old woman who the Lord said, I'm going to give you a child, and she goes, oh, okay. This was someone who shouldn't be having children anymore from a biological perspective, right? She's in her 70s. Abram's in his 80s at this point. Yeah, right. Am I going to have kids? We also have to note that she, in the midst of what she does, if we think about it, she, she does act in a selfless kind of a way, right? The things that she's doing aren't things that are somehow, like, naturally good for her. And what I mean by that is she, she has been married to Abram for a very long time. They had a faithful marriage. They loved one another. They cared for one another. They've been through thick and thin together. And so it, it's not that she obviously just wants her husband to go off and sleep with Hagar because it might be fun. Right? That's not something that she wants to see happen. It's, it's to her a sacrifice that she's making that is necessary in her eyes so that the promise can be fulfilled. Right? She didn't want him to lay with somebody. She wanted for him to have an heir. So Sarah decides to, what did we say earlier, just help along the promises of God. Right? None of this is appealing to her She is making a sacrifice. And again, this is not an excuse. This isn't something that excuses her behavior whatsoever. But it is to understand that her motives are at least somewhat good. She doesn't think she's going against anyone. She doesn't think she's throwing anyone under the bus for her own advancement. She's actually making a sacrifice for the greater good in her eyes. And saying, I'm going to help. The Lord made that promise, but I think he probably needs some help from me. So I'm going to help the Lord. We do that. We just think, I'm going to help the Lord along here. You don't say that out loud because that would be kind of ridiculous. But you do it in the way that you act and and make decisions about life and how we go about it. You you tell the Lord that I'm just going to help your purposes a little bit because you need me to kind of get this done. Because without me, you probably wouldn't be able to do it. No one can have a kid in their 70s. Hence, I'm going to get the concubine, and she's going to have the kid, and then it'll be mine. And the other thing that we have to understand is that Sarah offers Hagar as a surrogate of sorts. This was not an uncommon thing. right? You look at this, and, and obviously from the perspective of Hagar, it's awful, and we would consider it awful today. And it e- even was awful back then, and the Lord had nothing to do with it and didn't want to have anything to do with it. But culturally... This was a pretty standard practice where they were. 
This wasn't something new. Um, there, we have this law, we have these excerpts of, of law from that area and that time, not of, of God's or biblical law, but from various cultures of the time. And there's one particular set of laws that we have called the Newsy texts, and not Newsy as in the musical, but N-U-Z-I, the Newsy texts. They were found in the excavation of Newsy, which is an ancient Mesopotamian area. And here's an excerpt from a Newsy tablet, tablet number 67. This is part of the law of that time. And I'll butcher the names because I don't know any of us that could not butcher these names. If Gilliminu bears children, Shenema shall not take another wife. But if Gilliminu fails to bear children, Gilliminu shall get for Shenema a woman from the Lulu country, a.k.a. a slave girl, as a concubine. In that case, Gilliminu herself should have authority over the offspring. This is literally the law of the land in the cultures that surrounded where Sarai was. She's not getting this out of thin air. She's not plotting an affair because she feels like she just wants a kid. This is something that she pulled out of culture. Back then, if your wife couldn't bear children in some of these cultures, you would go get a concubine, and the legal code actually stipulated that if your slave girl, if your husband slept with the slave girl and she had a kid, that kid was legally yours, not the slave girl's. I don't say any of this to excuse Sarah's behavior. As a matter of fact, we will see the Lord doesn't excuse Sarah's behavior. We shouldn't in any way excuse it. I tell you this just to get you to understand the mindset that she was in and how she made the decisions that she made. It was still evil, but we kind of can get where she's coming from, at least to a degree. However, this isn't God's way. Sarah makes the offer to Abraham without any consideration of Hagar. She's property to her, right? And next we're told that Abraham listens to the voice of Sarai. In, in this account, uh, sometimes it might be hard to see, but once you see it, it's one of those, once you see, you can't unsee it. There's, the whole account is an echo of the fall account in Genesis 3, right? When, when we see Adam and Eve and the apple, there's this parallel between this account and that account. Sarah takes Hagar like Eve took the apple. She shouldn't have taken her, but she does. Sarah gives her to Abraham like Eve gives the apple to Adam, or the fruit. We don't know if it's an apple. I shouldn't say that, right? Abraham listens to Sarah and partakes of Hagar the way that Eve gives the fruit to Adam and he partakes of it. You see, like, the only character missing in the comparison is Satan himself, but we can be pretty sure that he's there, right, in Genesis 16, just like he was there in Genesis 3, deceiving, putting doubt into the mind of Sarah, saying, I know the Lord promised you a child. Look at you. You're old, for Christ's sake. How are you going to have a kid? Not unless you do something about it, right? And so she, she does she does something about it. And that's how we get to this deceptive part. Abraham lays with Hagar, and it works. Hagar is pregnant. And from that point on, things just continue to roll more and more ugly and ugly. It keeps getting worse. Hagar is now pregnant. Sarah got what she wanted. But now Hagar is strutting around pregnant in front of Sarah, who couldn't get pregnant, at least she thought. Right? Now, I've never experienced, but I've stood and sat with women who've experienced the, the inability to get pregnant. 
and the pain that is caused by that. And one of the worst things that they could see is glowing pregnant women walking around them in the midst of their inability and attempt to try to, to try to get pregnant themselves. That's a devastating thing to suffer through. And so what we start to see with the two of them is just this building animosity. Hagar walks around. She's upset that it happened. She's upset that she had to be slaved out to Abraham, but now she's pregnant. And so she has contempt, it says, for Sarai. She walks around like she kind of owns the place. She looks down on Sarah because she could get pregnant and Sarah could not, right? And so Sarah is upset. And so Sarah does something that we all do. And in this case, the woman does it, but men do this too. She goes to Abram and she says, this is all your fault. <laughs> right? Because in marriage, whenever something goes bad, it's never your fault. It's your spouse's fault. So they go, and he, she blames Abraham, and you picture him just sitting there. Okay, good. Sarah wanted me to, to have, to sleep with Hagar and make a kid. I did that, and now there's a kid. And then she comes in, and this is all your fault. Well, you asked me to do it. Well, you shouldn't have listened to me. And so she blames Abram for all of the troubles. Abraham returns and blames her back. She says, listen, this, this is your servant. If there's a problem with her, deal with it. You, you bought her, right? So she's blaming him, and he's blaming her, and this whole thing ends with Sarah treating Hagar so harshly that she ends up fleeing from their presence at the end of verse 6. she got to run away. She gets really, really far from them before the Lord intervenes down the road. There's obviously more to the story, but I want to stop and just note the level of mess. Sarah took matters into her own hands. She messed with the way of the Lord, the timing of the Lord, and it's blowing up in all of their faces in a spectacular way. Right? This is the worst kind of soap opera that you can imagine. He's slept with her, so now she's angry with him, but also her, uh, she's harsh to her, and he's bitter, and she doesn't understand why, and she's afraid for her life all of a sudden, and it's just this massive disaster. Days of our lives couldn't write something like this if they tried. Is Days of Our Lives still a thing? Are they still running? Someone tell me. Anybody here watch daytime TV? I don't have the time. Right? And here's the reality. They're both to blame, and they both disobeyed. And when you disobey God, it has massive ripple effects. The things that you think are these small disobediences can cause massive issues. And here's the perfect example of that. The child that Hagar is carrying ends up being born. She comes back into the fold of Abram and Sarah. The Lord comes to her and tells her, go back to your mistress and be faithful and I will care for you, I will treat you well, and your offspring will have many offspring, and I'll make great nations. And she, he, God makes all these promises to Hagar that he will keep her safe, and he does. He fulfills them. But when she goes back, she eventually bears the son that Abraham put inside of her, and they call him Ishmael. And if you maybe recognize the name Ishmael, uh, it's, it's a very culturally relevant name because Ishmael is the forefather of Adron, and Adron is the forefather of Muhammad. And if you're wondering, that Muhammad? Yes, that Muhammad. This is how Islam began. Muslims believe that they are the ones who have the proper lineage that was promised. Right? Because what's the promise to Abraham? From your offspring, I will create a great nation. They just have the wrong line. Right? 
We don't have the right line. It's not through Ishmael. It's through the next son that the Lord chooses to work. But that lineage, that mistake, leads to the creation of an entirely new religion in the world. And from that day on, even to this day, there is bloodshed and violence and chaos between Christians and Muslims. And over the years, there is enough blame on both sides to go around for that bloodshed and chaos and violence. I'm not talking about today. I'm not trying to get into an argument about whether Muslims are good or bad. That's not what this is for. But I will tell you, and you cannot deny, that there is absolute violence, bloodshed, and chaos between the Christian and the Muslim world, and that it's been that way for centuries. And it started because Sarah said, let me help God along. she the only one to blame for that conflict? No, of course not. Right? She didn't start a religion. She just disobeyed the Lord. But a small pebble can grow into a boulder so quickly that we don't even understand it. Right? There are ways in which we can disobey the Lord that causes ripple effects that can damage the world for centuries to come because we are not the people who are supposed to be helping God out unless he calls us to and only do it in the ways that he calls us to. And so, just as we asked with Moses last week, we have to look at this couple, this crazy soap opera lunatic couple, and we have to say, how on earth could they make it into the Hebrews 11 Hall of Faith? How can the Lord say of them, it is through faith that they all these things happened, through the wonderful faith of Abraham, and through the wonderful faith of Sarah, this is how we got here. And the only way that we can possibly explain that is by looking at what God does next in Genesis. How could they be included? The key to understanding this is not looking at what they do next, but what God does next. Listen to some excerpts from chapter 17, the very next chapter in the book of Genesis. First, 1 through 7. This is what God does immediately after their sin. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you, and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations." I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. God's response to the sin is to renew the promise. And then he changes his name from Abram to Abraham. We'll get to that in a second. But if we go on, he then deals with Sarah next, down in verse 15. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarah, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her. And moreover, I will give you a son by her. Notice that he's now 99. He's aged a couple years since this, right? I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. And then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? If you're 90, this is your turn to wonder what the heck 
right? Lost my spot. And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. They engage in sin. They go against God's word and his promises. They don't care. They do it their own way. What's God's response? He takes them and he makes them new. He literally gives them whole new identities. Between the two sections that I just read to you in Genesis 15, we have the, the first, the command from God to Abraham to circumcise all of the future offspring, right? If you're wondering where in scripture does circumcision start, it's right in between those two sections that I just read. I just cut it for time's sake, otherwise we'd be here for quite a while. Right? But that's, that's, the, that's the motive of what God does. He takes them both, he gives them new names, new identities. He renews the promise that he made that they had broken and run away from. And then he puts a timetable on it. He says, look, you want more details? I'm going to renew the promise. I'm going to renew you. I'm going to make you a great people. And I'm going to do it one year from today. You don't like waiting? You don't know if it's going to be five years, ten years, twelve years? Guess what? I will reward you for your disobedience. And I will actually tell you exactly when I'm going to fulfill the promise that you don't seem to think that I can fulfill. One year from today. Put it on the calendar, Abraham. You're going to have a kid from her, not from Hagar. Test me, says the Lord. Right? They are unfaithful, and God's response is faithfulness. And he says, when you have your son, you're going to name him Isaac. Isaac is from the Hebrew Yishak, which means he laughs. The name that he gives is literally God laughing in response to their inability to trust him. He says, what are you doing? know who I am. I walked among the animals. When I say something's going to happen, Abraham, it happens. And every day that they looked upon Isaac, they were reminded that when they questioned God, God just laughs. He says, you just wait and see what I'll do. When I make a promise, you might doubt me, you might think it's hogwash, you might not think that I can do what I promise I will do, but I'm just going to smile and laugh and I'm going to fulfill my promise and you will see that I'm God by what I do, not by what I say. Right? Does it say actions speak louder than words? God has words and God has actions and they match perfectly every single time. The Lord has never said something in all of scripture that doesn't match his actions. He has never proclaimed something that hasn't come to pass or that won't eventually come to pass. He has never made a promise he doesn't keep. And none of us can say that about ourselves. We could only say that about God, who is faithful. So here's the key. God vindicates Abraham and Sarah, and in response, they then faithfully obey and worship. Finally. Not initially, but because God intervened. This is literally Reformed theology working itself out in the story in Genesis. 
They are totally sinful and wretched. They are incapable of making the right decision. They are incapable of the faith that they are commended for in Hebrews 11. They can't do it. They disobey. They go their own way. They do their own thing. And the Lord's response is, I will put the faith in you. I will give you an identity of faithfulness. And then when you have that identity that I gave you, I will fulfill my promise when you are faithful. And then I will actually commend you for the faithfulness that I put inside of you. Hebrews 11. He credits that faith to them. Because when God establishes our identity, that's what our identity is now. And nothing can take it away. Right? And so they are called faithful in the book of Hebrews because they are faithful. But not because of their own doing, but because God made them that way. And then he praises them for it. It'd be like if I picked up all of Graham's toys and then clapped at him for picking up his toys. And he felt really good about himself for picking up his toys that he didn't touch. That's what God does for you and for me every single day. He gives us the ability to be faithful. He gives us the ability to trust him. He literally recreates us each and every day anew. He gives us a new heart and a new mind and a new vision for what his kingdom might have for us. And then he enables us to faithfully trust him. And then he commends us for that faith. We learn two key things from this passage. One is practical and one is theological. First, don't take matters into your own hands. God's timing is perfect. Even when it creates hardship in your life as you wait on him to fulfill his promises. His promise is perfect. When we try to help along God and his good gifts and his promises, we do such great amounts of harm. I want you to remember Sarah's circumstances from earlier. Think about this. She did what she did out of a good motivation. She did what she did in the culture that thought it was relevant. She did it because she thought it was the best thing for Abraham. She did it for all of these reasons. She was only doing what she thought was normal, but God calls us to not be normal in the culture, he calls us to be counter-cultural. Right? That's why Romans 12.1 tells us, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Don't conform to the world, but be transformed by the mind, not your mind that's not trustworthy because it's sinful, but the mind that I will give you that is renewed. I am to be your brain. I am to be your wisdom. I am to be your guiding post for what is right and what is wrong and what you should and shouldn't do. Not you, not the world around you, not your parents, not your kids, not your aunt that you love, not your fam favorite family relative, not your best friends in school or at the workplace. None of them are your guidepost. I, the Lord, am your guidepost. And that's it. That's what he calls us to. It is so hard not to help the Lord along with the promises, but to trust in him that he will be faithful. And guys, I can tell you what the Lord promises he will fulfill. Whether it's tomorrow or a hundred years from now, it will come to pass. He does have you. He does care for you. He does love you. He will sustain you. He will give you an inheritance. And you, along with Abraham, share in the blessing we are the great nation. We are the product of Abraham and Sarah's eventual faithfulness. We're here because of them. We get to stand among them. 
And there will come a day where we get to sit and be with people like Abraham and Sarah and Moses. And if you could sit with them and you could point them to Hebrews 11, they would go, yeah, I don't deserve to be in there. I don't know why he put me in there. I failed and then he did all the work and then somehow I got into the Hall of Fame. Praise the Lord. Because <laughs> it ain't me. calls us to be obedient even when it makes no sense to us and any of those around us. And the second truth is theological. When we fail and we will fail, God's promises still remain and stand firm. He is good. He is gracious. He is king even when we falter. We don't obey by our own bootstraps. We have faithfulness because he gives it to us. And so may we live as a people who walk by divinely gifted faith a gift from God who enables it inside of us. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. We thank you for your faithfulness to, to Abram and to Sarah. We thank you that in Genesis 12, you made a promise and you're still in the business of today of keeping it. That the great nation with descendants as numerous as the stars that you promised to Abraham all the way back then is still being built up more and more, person by person, day by day, to this day, that we are part of that promise being fulfilled and realized. Thank you that we get to play a role in the redemptive history of your kingdom. Lord, we pray that as you continue to usher that kingdom in, that we might be a people who live faithfully to you. Not because we're capable of it, but because you enable us, because you give our wretched self a new identity. Cover us. You give us your righteousness and you make us white as snow. And then your spirit enables us to obey when we otherwise couldn't because we're selfish and we're fearful. We don't want to trust you. Lord, help my unbelief. Be with us this week as we go out in faithfulness. Walk with us. Reassure us. Carry us when we need to be carried. We love you and praise you. And all those people said, Amen.